Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on the program, a new statue of educator and civil rights activist Mary McLeod Bethune is set to replace the statue of Confederate General Edmund Kirby Smith in the U.S. Capitol building. There was nothing happening in America that had to do with the advancement the struggle for equality of black people where Mary McLeod Bethune was not there. We'll discuss historic Florida freezes. Particularly devastating freezes are remembered in much the same way that destructive hurricanes are remembered. And talk about the Shade Tobacco Museum in Havana, Florida. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. That's a performance by the Bethune-Cookman University Chorale. Mary McLeod Bethune was an educator and activist who is now remembered with an 11-foot-tall, 6,000-pound statue carved by Nilda Comas. She used the last piece of statuary marble taken from the same Italian quarry used by Renaissance artist Michelangelo. The statue of Mary McLeod Bethune will be on permanent display in the United States Capitol Building in Washington, D.C., representing the state of Florida. Mary McLeod Bethune was born to enslaved parents and was the first in her family to be born free. In 1904, she founded a school in Daytona Beach that would become Bethune-Cookman University. She was an educator, an advisor to U.S. President Franklin Roosevelt, and an active proponent of racial equality. Janetta Betch Cole is president and board chair of the National Council of Negro Women. Nothing happening in America that had to do with the advancement, the struggle for equality of black people, where Mary McLeod Bethune was not there. Mary McLeod was born in 1875 on a plantation near Maysville, South Carolina. Abel Bartley is professor of history at Clemson University, and Sheila Fleming is president of the Black Rose Foundation. Maysville is a small hamlet. It is in one of the areas of the Cotton Belt of South Carolina, a very retrograde area. Her mother and her grandmother set the tone for her. They inculcated in her the sense of pride. Her parents, Sam and Patsy McLeod, they were enslaved people. It is said that Mary McLeod when she was nine, could pick 250 pounds of cotton in a day. Someone saw her intellectual ability and gave her a scholarship to leave that area and move up higher in education. Mary McLeod's scholarship enabled her to attend Scotia Seminary in North Carolina from 1888 to 1894. 
1895, she attended and graduated from Moody Bible Institute in Chicago. After teaching at schools in Savannah, Georgia, and Palatka, Florida, she went to Daytona, where she opened the Daytona Educational and Industrial School for Negro Girls in 1904. Trudy Kibby reed is former president of Bethune-Cookman University, Paul Ortiz is professor of history at the University of Florida, and Elaine Smith is assistant professor of history at Alabama State University. With five little girls, a dollar fifty cents that she raised from selling sweet potato pies and boiled eggs, she was able to create her first school. She cared most deeply about children, especially black children, during a period at the turn of the century when black people were still just getting used to their freedom and needing so many things. Of course, the black community was there, ready for their children to be educated. Mrs. Bethune is teaching a very different kind of education. It's not about assimilation to the dominant society. It's about transforming that society. And for the first time ever, making it into a democratic polity where all people are respected. When you talk about Mary McLeod Bethune and, and the way she was able to navigate the racial waters of the South, you're looking at someone who really understood the mind of a Southerner. They're willing to open up part of the pie for African-Americans as long as African-Americans don't ask for too large of a slice. Bethune was able to grow a school in a hostile environment because she had influential whites, both men and women, supporting her. James Gamble, a Procter and Gamble, she asked him to be on the, the Board of Trustees, and he said, a Board of Trustees of what? And she says, it's a dream. Starting in 1904, he was the chair of her Board of Trustees. He brought other people in. So she was able to develop relationships with people across boundaries. Larry Wesley is adjunct professor of history at Daytona State College. And she carried herself in such a way that there were no barriers or boundaries for her. And I think both black and white alike were actually taken by that. No one had ever seen anything or anybody like that. Harold V. Lucas Jr., James Daniels, and Harriet Fulmore are all longtime residents of Daytona Beach. In her calm and easy way, she made the people in, in Daytona understand that Bethune Cookman was something special. Most interesting was how quickly the college evolved from nothing to, by 24, it's a junior college. Even though society looked down upon people who were dark-skinned, and Bethune was very dark-skinned, she did not let that stop her. When she walked into that auditorium, she said, stand up, you little black boys and girls. She was trying to give us, instill in us that uh, black was not dirty. Black was, it was okay to be black. The students at the college were so impressive. When you would see them move about the community, you would know them by their dress. They were highly respected because they could sit on the benches down there and wait for the bus, and we couldn't. They had a community meeting at the college on Sunday afternoons. This is where she invited John D. Rockefeller and the White Sewing Machine Company. Jeanette Ford is director of the Bethune Oral History Project at Bethune-Cookman University. It was the only place in Daytona Beach where interracial groups could meet freely, was on the campus of Bethune-Cookman University. 
Mary McLeod Bethune did that. She would tell her board of trustees very clearly again when they came to campus, look, you have to sit with the Negro citizenry here. And John D. Rockefeller might be sitting right next to his gardener. This was eye-opening. It said that black people were just as good as white people, just having desegregated seating, which was against the law of Florida. When women acquired the right to vote in 1920, Bethune increased her efforts to enfranchise blacks. Those efforts were met with resistance from the Ku Klux Klan. The Klan was a formidable organization in the 1920s and for a brief time controlled both Daytona's and Volusia County's government. Janetta Betch Cole, Elaine Smith, and Nancy Long, author of Mary McLeod Bethune, Her Life and Legacy. She believed in the right to vote and risked her own life to get black people to vote. Becoming politically aware, participating in the mainstream of American life was a major priority. The Ku Klux Klan had come to her campus and they had made it clear that what she was doing in encouraging African-American people to vote had to stop. They would have no more of it. She gathered the teachers. It was near nightfall. And she said, tonight is a good night for the choir to practice. And then Mrs. Bassoon ordered the staff to flood the campus with lights. And this just seemed to upset the KKK because all of a sudden, they're the ones being watched. And so they're in full light now, and they're not as scary. And they just all turned around and left. She believed in a God who she said would protect her, including putting her own life in danger in the interest of her people. Through the 1910s, 1920s, and 1930s, Bethune became increasingly prominent among this country's top black leaders. She joined, founded, and led numerous civil rights and black advocacy organizations, always seizing opportunities to combat racism and promote democracy. Paul Ortiz, Harvard Sitkoff, Professor Emeritus of History from the University of New Hampshire, and Elaine Smith. Remember the motto of the National Association of Colored Women, lifting as we climb. She's literally lifting people out of situations of impoverishment and 20th century slavery. She was involved with many different organizations, the National Negro Congress, the NAACP. Uh, she worked with leaders of the Urban League. That's what she did that nobody else did, can, can, can claim to do, because black women did not have visibility in the national affairs of the United States until Mary McLeod Bethune came along. She demanded that white people respect black womanhood. Bethune helped African Americans secure more citizenship rights and greater economic security with FDR's New Deal programs of the 1930s. By the end of the decade, she was the highest-ranking African-American in federal government and Black America's most effective advocate for racial justice. Abel Bartley, Janetta Betch Cole, and Jarvis Givens, assistant professor of history at Harvard University. Eleanor Roosevelt was very impressed with Mary McLeod Bethune. Mary McLeod Bethune was able to have intimate conversation with Eleanor Roosevelt. She was able to articulate what African-Americans needed. 
They wanted to push the envelope on what women's rights were and social justice. When Dr. Bethune wanted to speak with President Franklin Delano Roosevelt, she would just pick up the phone and say, Eleanor, I understand the president wishes to speak with me. And Eleanor Roosevelt would find her husband and say, Franklin, I think you wish to speak with Mary. That relationship between those two women, a friendship between a black and a white woman, opened the doors that allowed Mary McLeod Bethune to know President Franklin Delano Roosevelt. There are very few people that I can think of that had anywhere near the level of influence that Mary McLeod Bethune had as an advisor to multiple U.S. presidents. My understanding is you know, the only woman of color to be at the founding of the United Nations. On May 18, 1955, Mary McLeod Bethune died of a heart attack in her home on the campus of what is now Bethune-Cookman University. The new marble statue of Mary McLeod Bethune will join the statues of four other prominent African Americans in the U.S. Capitol building, Frederick Douglass, Sojourner Truth, Rosa Parks, and Martin Luther King. Bethune's statue will be the first in Statuary Hall to honor an African American who has been chosen by a state. Each state selects two statues to represent them in Statuary Hall. The other statue representing Florida is of inventor and scientist John Gorey, who made early advances in air conditioning and refrigeration. His statue was placed in the U.S. Capitol in 1914. Nancy Lohman is president of the Dr. Mary McLeod Bethune Statuary Fund, and Sheila Fleming is president of the Black Rose Foundation for Children. Nilda Comos will be the first Hispanic master sculptor represented in Statuary Hall. That in itself, I think, is beautiful symbolism. I see her there as a reminder, especially during these political times, that we are all in the same boat. We are all human beings. There is a oneness that God intends for us to have. And here it is. I'm reminding you of that. Before heading to Washington, D.C., the statue of Mary McLeod Bethune was displayed in the Daytona Beach News Journal Center, where nearly 15,000 people came to see it between mid-October and mid-December 2021. To see the statue now, go to myfloridahistory.org and find episode 48 of Florida Frontiers Television, Mary McLeod Bethune Goes to Washington. Production assistance for that program and this one was provided by Better World Films. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit myfloridahistory.org to register for the Florida Historical Society 2022 Public History Forum and the 33rd Annual Marjorie Kinnan Rawlings Society Conference being presented together May 19th through 21st in Gainesville. The conference features renowned presenters, tours of museums and historic sites, special musical performances, and more. That's myfloridahistory.org. Joining us now is Connie Lester, Associate Professor of History at the University of Central Florida, Director of the Riches Digital Archiving Project, and Editor of the Florida Historical Quarterly. Connie, this month we've been experiencing some freezing temperatures in Florida. Can you tell us about some of the historic freezes in the state? 
Like hurricanes, freezes in Florida, while generally short-lived, have devastating long-term effects agriculturally, especially for citrus growers. In fact, in a 2019 publication in the journal Weather by University of Florida and National Weather Service researchers studied the effects of both weather events and concluded that, quote, even single occurrences of cold weather outbreaks and tropical systems can have highly significant effects and have shaped the borders of Florida's Citrus Belt and Indian River District. Particularly devastating freezes are remembered in much the same way that destructive hurricanes are remembered in historical publications, literature, and folklore. The freezes of December 1894, February 1895, and February 1899 are examples. These freezes were marked by high winds and precipitation that turned to sleet and snow. Ice formed on standing water. In the case of the 1894-1895 freezes, a hard freeze in December that destroyed the oranges that were still on the trees was followed by a much deeper freeze in February that destroyed the trees themselves. The February 1899 freeze produced the lowest temperatures ever recorded in Florida when Tallahassee dropped to minus 2 degrees Fahrenheit. Images of these weather events show broken branches weighed down by the ice and frozen fruit. Growers recall the popping sounds of breaking branches that continued for several days. In A Land Remembered, Patrick Smith uses the December and February freezes to frame the death of one of the central characters, Tobias, who dies while attempting to save even one of the trees in order to start over, as the family had done so many times. In this depiction, the family picked oranges throughout the day of December 28, as the wind grew stronger and the temperatures dropped. As Smith explained, quote, this was the time of year when brief storms and cold fronts rushed across the land and then disappeared as quickly as they arrived, making the temperatures go up and down rapidly, often changing as much as 30 degrees in one hour. The growers believed that temporary cooling sweetened the winter garden crops of collards and made the oranges even juicier. But this freeze was different. By the next morning, the temperature had dropped to 14 degrees Fahrenheit, and the oranges were frozen solid. The good news was that the trees were still living and would produce again next year, a short crop, but hope for the future. As Smith writes, the February storm began with rain, and, quote, there was a strange coolness in the air that felt like little drops of ice rather than water. Shortly after dark, the wind increased to a howling fury, rattling the windows and making the walls creak. The temperature dropped rapidly. The next morning, the temperature stood at 11 degrees, and as the day wore on, the air was filled with cracking sounds that came like thunder as overburdened tree limbs gave way from the weight of ice and crashed to the ground. Like the fictional family, growers throughout Florida faced a bleak future. Citrus would return, but only after a decade of replanting and experimentation. Connie, what sorts of strategies did citrus growers adopt to mitigate against future freezes? First, the growers planted in different locations. 
Agricultural researchers tell us that individual groves were relatively small in size, but larger growers might have multiple groves in various locations to take advantage of microenvironments of varying elevations, proximity to lakes, which had a warming effect, and locations ranging from the northern edge of the citrus belt to more southern sites. Second, growers experimented with different varieties of citrus fruits, especially with fruits of various maturity dates. Early maturing oranges and grapefruits were planted in northern counties, while Valencia oranges, which matured later, were relegated to more southern counties to protect against freezes. Were there freezes in the 20th century that were equally devastating as the big freeze of 1894, 95, and 1899? Yes. According to Kathleen Miller, a researcher with the National Center for Atmospheric Research, between 1900 and 1990, there were more than 50 significant freezes. But the most devastating ones occurred in the 1980s, when Florida experienced six such events in 1981, 82, 83, 85, and two in 89. Before the December 1989 freeze, the two most serious ones occurred in 1983 and 1985. The northern and northwestern counties of the Citrus Belt experienced the largest losses. Lake County, the second largest citrus-producing acreage in the state, lost 90% of its trees in the two freezes. Like earlier growers, the citrus producers of the 1980s revised their growing strategies to focus on earlier maturing fruit and to take advantage of microenvironments. But as one study noted, the citrus belt is situated at a unique location on the Florida Peninsula. To the north, there is greater frequency of freezing temperatures and destructive hard freeze events. To the south, there is a higher frequency of hurricanes and greater exposure to destructive winds. In addition, increasing pressures from expansive urbanization, the appearance of canker and citrus greening in recent years, push some generational growers out of citrus. Although Florida continues to be the largest producer of citrus in the nation, growers in the Sunshine State face numerous challenges. And of course, being winter in Florida, Connie, the temperature when people listen to this, it might be freezing or it might be the upper 80s. We never know, but hopefully not freezing. Thanks a lot. You're welcome. Connie Lester is Associate Professor of History at the University of Central Florida, Director of the Riches Digital Archiving Project, and Editor of the Florida Historical Quarterly. This is Florida Frontiers. Shade tobacco was a major crop in North Florida. Holly Baker is Public History Coordinator for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. Florida native Drew Paget teaches history at Robert F. Monroe Day School in Quincy, Florida. He also volunteers at the Havana History and Heritage Society's Shade Tobacco Museum in Havana, Florida. He told me about the once-booming shade tobacco industry and Havana's role as the center of shade tobacco production in the early 20th century. Shade tobacco is tobacco grown under the shade. It was used mostly for cigar wrapping. So when cigars were really popular, starting after the Civil War, cigars became a preferred way to smoke tobacco. We had a really big boom in cigar production. Starting in 1870s, 1880s, into the 1890s, 
it has to be grown in a particular way. You want a leaf that is not only soft and flexible, but obviously one that tastes good too, and that is strong enough to bind the tobacco within the cigar. And shade tobacco was only grown in two parts of the United States, in the Connecticut River Valley, so around Hartford, Connecticut, and here in Gadsden County, and a few other counties surrounding, particularly Decatur and Grady County, which is right across the Georgia-Florida border uh, to the north of Gadsden County. The railroad first came to Havana, Florida in 1902, and soon farming and shipping of shade tobacco became very profitable. Havana as a town wasn't established until the early 1900s. Before that, uh, there were a few communities that uh, had been around since uh, after the Civil War. Salem, uh, literally this is the name of a place. Coon Bottom is the name of an area, Concord. Not only do you have growers that uh, started growing more and more shade tobacco in that particular area of Gadsden County. Havana's in the northeastern corner of Gadsden County. A railroad was built uh, near the Salem community, and when that railroad was built, people obviously gravitated more toward the railroad. So Havana got its name, obviously, from Havana, Cuba, uh, in honor of tobacco grown in the area. And by the 19-teens, 1920s, uh, we have stores including fertilizer, feed, farm supply stores. Obviously, we have other community businesses pop up, whether it be restaurants, obviously city government, municipal services. You have theaters, you have stores, you have a bustling small town economy starting to emerge uh, right there by the railroad. And Havana would boom until shade tobacco started fading in the 1960s, 1970s. For nearly a hundred years, almost everyone in Havana, Florida and the surrounding communities worked in the thriving business of growing, curing, packing, and shipping shade tobacco. Havana, a lot of tobacco was grown in the area. When it comes to its actual processing and packaging, most of that happened in Quincy, the county seat. Quincy is one of the oldest towns in the state of Florida. I think it's like 10th oldest. It was platted in the 1820s. So it has been around a really long time. Even to this day, there are four or five buildings within the town that were built in the 1830s uh, that are still standing. It's a very, very old town. It was very influential, especially in territorial and uh, Civil War Florida, especially being right down the road from Tallahassee. But a lot of packing houses uh, we're in Quincy. I think Havana had four. A uh, lot more growing around Havana than actual processing. So Quincy probably had a little bit or actually had more activity than Havana did. But Havana's culture and identity and history, obviously in its name, definitely tied to shade tobacco. And it, I mean, even to this day, like it is, it shaped the town and a lot of people are proud of that heritage. And our museum exists for that reason to make sure that heritage lives on. The Havana History and Heritage Society Shade Tobacco Museum is housed in the Planters Exchange Building, a historic landmark built in 1928. The Planters Exchange once served as the main manufacturer of fertilizer and supplier of pesticides and farm supplies needed by the shade tobacco growers in Gadsden and Madison counties. The Shade Tobacco Museum is dedicated to preserving the history and the significance of shade tobacco. Drew Paget. The goal of the museum has been to educate visitors, not only about the community and the heritage of the town, but to appreciate shade tobacco and what it did for Gadsden County for over a hundred years. I mean, this was a industry that defined and shaped 
what Gadsden County became, especially in terms of its demographics and its uh, culture as a primarily agricultural county, even into the 21st century. For Florida Frontiers, I'm Holly Baker, Public History Coordinator for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week. Until then, visit us anytime online at myfloridahistory.org and on Facebook. Production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Holly Baker and Connie Lester, and this week, Better World Films. The program is edited by John White. Have a great week. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org.